welcome to the Thursday, June 24th edition of the Clemson Dubcast, hot off the presses, TigerIllustrated.com, Thursday insider notes from Paul Strilo, DeMario Tolan, four-star linebacker from Orlando, Florida. He's announcing his choice July 8th. He kicked off the month with a two-night stay at Clemson where he picked up an offer shortly after arrival. Paul Strilo has much more on Tolan and some other notable names right now at TigerIllustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse and neglect, car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation, at Parm Smith and Arch and Hall, call 864-990-4581 or online at parmlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com. To our guest, William Qualkenbush. I've known this guy for a long time. Actually learned during our conversation, he's a regular listener to this podcast, which is quite flattering. Really entertaining and engaging conversation here with Qualk Talk, who when he hung up the phone with us this morning, he was headed off to do another three hours of live radio. Appreciate him sharing his time with us. Here we go. Enjoy. Okay, a long overdue guest, William Qualkenbush. How you doing, man? Larry, I'm doing great. Uh, it's good to be with you finally, and uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it was uh, it was very flattering for you to ask me, and I'm really excited to, to be doing this. Yeah, I appreciate that. We were just talking before I hit record about, um, you know, there's, I guess, a, a trend now is, is toward video uh, formats with podcasts, I guess, probably driven a lot by... Uh, a year in a pandemic with er- when everybody had to go to the, you know, was forced to, to acquaint themselves with Zoom and all that. But I, I th- you're, you're like me. I still prefer the, the audio format because you can do a lot of different things while listening, um, whether it's mowing the yard or driving or whatever. Oh, for sure. Uh, for example, uh, right before we did this, I did show prep this morning, and then I went out and cut the grass. And I had two podcasts that I listened to while I was cutting the grass. And uh, as I just told you, your podcast with Drew Butler, which I loved a few weeks ago, I did that while I was turning hedges. So uh-huh. if I like, if I had to, uh, you know, watch for an hour, if I had to engage you with, uh, like, look at your face for an hour, it'd be wonderful. Uh, I'm sure. 
but uh, but I wouldn't be able to do this other thing. So I appreciate you getting into this space and kind of, I mean, doing what we do every day and uh, trying to engage people uh, without needing the picture. And it's also, at least with me, when I don't have to worry about my face, <laughs> like you know, like like a one-on-one conversation, you know, visually. I can sort of think better, like I can look, you know, as opposed to having to make eye contact on a on a screen or whatever. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Uh, look, I I probably shouldn't say this because I, I want people to think that I go into the studio every day, or I, you know, I show up at every venue like well coiffed and just neatly groomed and all this. Man, if I don't have to do anything on TV, I might not get a haircut for six weeks. Uh, you know, I I might wear a hat for twenty consecutive days. Uh, you never you never really know, and it is. I mean, the, the pressure is totally off, and I I love that. I could show up in a in a t shirt and like uh, you know cargo shorts or whatever I want, like flip flops. You could do whatever. But on TV, you have to at least keep up the pretense that you care about what you look like. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I I like that that I can really focus on, and not that not that I wouldn't if I if everybody could see me all the time. Like I have great respect for people who do radio shows that are that are filmed live. So I think that's that's a level of stress that I'm not ready for and probably wouldn't be very good at. But uh, I I do think that the ability to let your hair down helps you have more time to focus on the content and what you're giving people. Well, let your hair down figuratively in my case because I don't really have have much hair. But yeah, oh, sh- I'm getting there. I'm getting there. It's it's rough. It is really rough. I'm starting to wear hats more and more so that people see my hair less and less. That's a problem. Yeah, my checklist for for when I'm about to start a podcast is already long enough, and it consists of if kids are home, go upstairs and tell them to be quiet for an hour. Um, make sure my dog, which when any when there's any movement outside the front door, whether it be mailman, UPS, Amazon, or a squirrel like walking over a leaf, dog just goes nuts, and so I have to, I have to stow him and back in a bedroom, or as is the case right now, right beside me uh, in a basement, so he can't hear uh, anything outside. So I think making sure I was visually presentable would be just enough to, to too many items on the checklist. So the audio way uh, format is is the way to go. The Drew Butler thing. Um, the, the, the name image likeness topic is, is, is so complex. I, I wanted him on just to learn more about it. Did, what, what did you maybe pick up from him and his insight and his sort of position, uh, as like a facilitator between athlete and school and, uh, uh, mainly compliance department and all that, that you didn't already, uh, know. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, if, if I may say so, I, I, I consider your podcast, this podcast, uh, uh, in many cases, a critical part of my show prep. Wow. Because, for instance, yeah, for instance, Kyle Young, when you had Kyle Young on, I listened to that whole conversation, and I learned things that I hadn't learned in conversations before about the academic common market and what it actually means and, what you know, rather than using it as – as many, and I won't use names, but many radio folks and many sort of uh, commentators do just to make it a straw man boogeyman out there that means whatever you need it to mean to scare people the most. I want to know what it actually is and what it actually does. Um, I think name image likeness has become that, where name image likeness has become the way to decry whatever it is that you want to decry about the current state of affairs and culture instead of trying to break apart piece by piece, okay, this is what it means. What's the impact of that? Okay, this is what it means. What's the impact of that? Okay, wow, this is what it doesn't mean. 
that's how that's not going to be an impact. So we don't even need to touch that because that's not what name image likeness is here to do. I liked how he broke apart, you know, the open doors and those types of things that, that Clemson was talking about. Those are more educational and how his company is, is doing more of the facilitation and how I think we have in our minds with name image likeness that this is, you know, th- th- this is a, a group of student athletes that are just setting up with tables at the student center or something and being like, all right, businesses, come on. What do you got for me? Mm-hmm. And they're just getting proposals all day long and they have no idea what to do. And it's just these, the, all these rudderless ships who are going to violate every single rule on the book and are going to get taken advantage of by these companies. But it was very comforting to me as someone who's still learning uh, quite a bit about this and trying to explain it to people in real time and, and trying to help educate people while I'm being educated myself. It was it was very um, helpful and very interesting uh, to hear his perspective on. Look, we're going to be the middleman. We're going to make sure that they get their 1099s, and we're going to make sure that the legalese is taken care of, and we're going to make sure that they have some sort of representation. That we provide a table at which athletes and business or brand representatives can sit. I, I thought that was so enlightening to me. It was a perspective that I had not heard from other people. It was way more complex than the simplistic things that I had been throwing out about name, image, likeness. And so, as I mean, my goal on our show every day is I want to help make people better uh, as I'm becoming better as a student of the games that we're watching and as a, as a student of sports and a student of the culture. And so I hope that that was the goal. And a lot of those things, the way that we've talked about name, image, likeness for the last two or three weeks, since that podcast came out, um, hopefully the audience is better educated. And some of those red herrings and, and some of those sort of uh, worst-case scenario, doom and gloom uh, situations, hopefully at least for a few people who want to cling to those, that we can sort of educate them and say, no, 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 this is a very different way than we've been thinking and talking about this issue. Yeah, you talk you know, some, some of the, I guess, fear-mongering, whatever. You know, I think maybe a month ago, you know, somebody's like, well, now they're going to have to pay taxes. How 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 are they going to do that? And I'm like, um, they'll probably fill out a 1099 just like a waitress would at, at Blue Heron, who, who's also a college. I mean, it's not that complicated to you know fill out a 1099. And people like Icon Source are are there uh, to facilitate that. So yeah, there are some. I mean, there's some legitimate questions, of course. But I think for every you know person who's Wondering, oh, how you know how are they going to get along in the locker room now? How are they going to, um, you know, retain the maximum focus on the football field? There's also like something that was really, I guess, illuminated by the Drew Butler, the Georgia example is Todd Gurley had to sit four freaking games mm-hmm. for making like three thousand dollars off of his autograph. Like that's something has to change. That has to be part of the conversation too, right? I 100% agree. I mean, I, I think I agree with people that say that it's going to create jealousy. Of course, it's going to create jealousy in the locker room. But as you said, the example that that you talked about with Drew and the you know the Todd Gurley not being there, that jealousy goes away if the player's not available, right? So, I mean, in some ways, I think that example is a real time example of the now. In the future, you may not have that example because it might be replaced with he does get $3,000 for his autograph and maybe somebody's jealous. The reality is there's jealousy in every locker room anyway. I, I don't I don't see it as we're now entering jealousy into the picture and it was a jealousy-free zone before. 
That's why there are 60 million people in the transfer portal for like 12 scholarships. Right. Because jealousy enters the picture because not everybody can play as much as they or their parents or their grandparents or their seven on seven coach or their high school coach or one of their p- professors or whoever. I, nobody is playing as much as every single person in their life thinks that they should play, except maybe the starting quarterback that takes every snap. So you have jealousy. And if you're not jealous, then people are telling you you should be jealous all the time. It already happens. I don't understand why we deprive people of the opportunity to make a little bit. I think this whole thing about guys are going to make half a million dollars is silly. I think that's what the NCAA tells people for propaganda. I don't think that's legitimate. I think uh, you know guys with uh, YouTube channels that are worth monetizing are going to monetize it. Uh, you're not going to have a situation like you did with the UCF kicker who had a great thing going with YouTube, and they told him, you got to pick between a collegiate athletics experience or making money. I never had to do that. I worked in the sports information office at Clemson for six years, uh, earning two degrees, and I filled out a 1099 every year. And I, <laughs> Honestly, I gave my forms to my parents and did it okay, but I never had to make that decision. Hey, you can either you know work this job or get paid. Uh, I, I never had to make that choice, and, and a lot of the things I've been able to do in my career are because of what I did at Clemson. In fact, basically every avenue that's opened up for me has been because of my Clemson experience, which was furthered by working for Tim Bray in the sports information office. That is the case with all of these collegiate athletes, too. So I, I just think it's simplistic and it speaks to maybe a little bit of um, some, some folks being separated from the process, either by age or by they didn't go to college. They didn't, you know, they had to do it another way or maybe, you know, in the case of like Dabo Sweeney. His path was very different, and he's been criticized for the way that he talks about his path. I just think people people need to open up their eyes and see the horizon of what's coming and understand some of the logical fallacies that we're trying to throw in there and the potential benefits on the other side to student-athletes for creating opportunities that not just in the professional ranks but in the, in the corporate ranks, in the business ranks, you know, when you graduate – you're able to then build those business connections, build those community connections that allow you to stand up on your own two feet when you do get your degree and you do get out of college. Two or three years ago, uh, name, image, likeness, supporting it was kind of seen as controversial almost. I mean, you had, you know, uh, it just well, there wasn't a whole lot of momentum uh, as far as the perception. Uh, you know, back in uh, I don't I forgot what year. Maybe 13, 14, uh, Darius Robinson and Martin Jenkins were involved sort of in the movement to sort of change that structure. They were, that was controversial. And now here we are, it seems like the majority of people are like, okay, enough of this. Let's, let's do this. When, how has your sort of, the evolution of your opinion on it changed uh, in recent years? Well, I'll say this. I'm, I love politics. I'm a big political junkie. I tend to see the world through a political lens. And you see that sometimes in politics. In fact, I wouldn't even say sometimes. You see it literally every day in politics with quite literally every single issue that politicians will take the idea of something and scare whatever their base is into thinking that the worst way that this could possibly be used is going to be used. You can think of any example right now. If you're listening to this podcast, you can think of at least one example Right now, something you saw today or yesterday or the day before of a politician using that issue, it happens on both sides of the aisle, it happens every single day. I think that's what happened with name image likeness because when this discussion started, we had a lot of questions. 
And I think, as you said, Larry, we, we had a lot of concerns about this, what we didn't want this to mean. For example, I was concerned as someone who makes a living in a college town based on the ability of the Clemson Athletic Department to have games, uh, to fund scholarships so that there are sports, so that there are games to call, so that there are games to discuss. I was worried about sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I understand people talk about, you know, they'll find a way to make it work. These nonprofits, they got to use the money anyway. They'll use it some way. But to me, I didn't want it to become a situation where uh, all of a sudden athletic departments now have to foot the bill for these, you know, these likeness opportunities for these athletes. And then once it got a little more specific, where we're saying, no, 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 no. We're not pulling from the money pot that we're thinking of. We're creating a side money pot here where third-party entities, these brands, these businesses that, you know, YouTube, TikTok, whatever the case may be, Instagram, some of these other places where they now can pay these athletes, where the athletic department, um, you know, the, the recent Supreme Court ruling aside, the athletic department really doesn't have any obligation there. That really addresses my main concern. So at that point, I'm good with it. Now, the other thing that I have seen that I disagree with, and my co-host on radio, Kelly Gramwick, she disagrees even more vehemently than me, is that there are some that say, if it's not money in my pocket, there's no value. So we have tried hard to support name image likeness while also sort of addressing the other side of the argument and saying, a scholarship is not worth zero. Books are not worth zero. Room and board is not worth zero. You know, the, the educational opportunities you get, access to free tutoring is not worth zero. Access to these facilities, access to these training, access to these meals is not worth zero. And so there is a value to the education. That's a basic economic principle that I think some folks have acted like these students are coming and they're being asked to foot the bill for every single little thing. When in reality, if you talk to athletes, particularly in a revenue sport like football, if they're using their money wisely, they leave with money in their pockets. They're able to make money off of the stipends that they get, off of the per diem money they get on the road, which, by the way, the meals are provided on the road. You don't even need that money, but it's provided to you in many cases. But these are opportunities to pocket a little cash that nobody's going to really say anything about. And ultimately, uh, I think that's a misnomer that the sort of pro-NIL, uh, pro-pay-player side has overlooked that – it is possible to be in favor of players using their name, image, and likeness and also saying that they are coming to school and getting significant value, not just in what you get when you're here uh, in school, but what you get after where you don't have student loans, you don't have that lingering over you with your credit history and all that stuff through your whole life. I mean, those are major life benefits that athletes get. So should they be getting more? Absolutely. Whose fault is that? Well, it's not, you know, I, I don't think it's Ed O'Bannon's fault necessarily, or like you said, Darius Robinson or Martin Jenkins. Really, it's the NCAA's fault, and it's athletic mm -hmm. department's fault for making this a billion-dollar industry and giving very incremental additional benefits to student-athletes and creating a pile of money that's so large that it seems ridiculous that we're not letting student-athletes get whatever it is that they've earned in the process. Yeah, and their pursuit of the financial bonanzas that have come with conference championship games and then the playoff, uh, they they should have had more vision uh, and and more and been been more realistic. Um, they're the ones who have made this bed, uh, in, in in my opinion. And you're right. Like as far as the there's too much mutual exclusivity going on. You know, in the typical conversation about name, image, likeness, it's almost like you know it's just two two sides 
you know, you have to have to pick one, but I thought that uh, Kelly Graham, like your, your sidekick, I just, before I called you, um, saw a great observation from her. Uh, she tweeted, I am 100% in support of name image likeness for student athletes. However, I am also someone who benefited immensely from playing a non-revenue sport for my school and receiving a free education. We need to preserve the good parts of amateurism and get rid of the bad. And I commented on that. It's like this is you know this is a really necessary part of the conversation. You know that trends too much toward one side versus the other. You can both be you can be in support of name image likeness while not ignoring the the bountiful benefits of the current system. And I, I've talked to tons of players over the last year or two. I think last off season, which at one point was threatening to, <laughs> to extend through the fall, uh, we did like a where are they now. Um, kind of series and I, I asked almost all those those guys like uh, football players you know uh, sort of you feel like players should be you know should get something more and then and invariably they say yes but they also say man my, my education whether they whether they um fulfilled it during their actual time as players or they had to come back you know of their own volition man that is worth something and it's and it's worth more now than ever because of the uh, the Paul journey and the, those types of programs that really have nothing to do with with what the with what the athlete is doing on the field. Now, could you argue that's a you know recruiting is driving that in general? Yeah, yeah, because the, you know you, the moms and dads you know really gravitate toward that kind of type of thing. But but still, there's the fact that there is tremendous value in that. It's not zero, as you say. Oh, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, I see it every day with Kelly. Um, you know, when we, when we started our show, she had just finished up her playing career and was helping out in the sports information or the athletic communications office. And I think she told this story on your podcast last year, but, um, we were having an argument about the, the warriors or something after a women's basketball game. And Jeff Callen said, why don't you guys do that on the radio? If she had not played, if I had not interviewed her as a grad student when she was a freshman, if we had not had at least a baseline relationship because of Clemson bringing us together, uh, I mean, I don't know that I'd be doing what I'm doing. I don't know what she'd be, uh, be doing what she's doing. I don't know that we'd be doing it together. So the opportunity to make those connections, as you said, Paul Journey, like uh, I saw Darian Rencher post some things on the set of uh, NBA Countdown or something. He's working for ESPN. Uh, right now, mm-hmm. and uh, that that's a great connection. What what uh, what they have going with Adobe? I know uh, I get the Davis twins mixed up. One or both of the Davis twins. Who knows how many of them are anywhere at one time? But uh, JD and Judah, I, I think both of them did, or at least one of them. I don't know. They went went out to Adobe, and a bunch of guys have gone out to Adobe out to the West Coast. That's not only a business experience; that's a cultural experience in a very different part of the world. Uh, those are those are opportunities that you don't get as normal students all of the time. Now, some students will get them, but they're more easily attainable for some of these athletes. If you go to a place like Clemson, and I'm not trying to sell Clemson and recruits here, but if you go to a place like Clemson, it really puts a premium on that. And I'll say one more thing about the NCAA to me, and I'll, I'll go back to politics just for a second. You can think of many times where an entity has sat on the sidelines and watched as whatever side they hated did exactly what they didn't want because they didn't have an alternative it has been absolutely shocking to me that the NCAA, again, a billion-dollar enterprise, went all the way to the Supreme Court only to get laughed at by people who don't agree on anything from very different perspectives who basically said, we don't even know why you brought this case to us. 
this is laughably bad what you're trying to do and grossly in violation of federal antitrust law. And the reality is the NCAA is about to be shut out of this process completely, not because they didn't fight hard enough. I think we think that as long as you fight, you can get a seat at the table. No, no, no. It's because they fought too hard for a rigid stance and they weren't able to see which way the wind was blowing and at least latch on and get a seat at the table. Now the door's been slammed to their face and the people that they hate and told us to be afraid of are going to be crafting this new, uh, this new legislation, wherever it comes from. I think there is a, a great lesson to learn about politics, certainly, but about life, about getting along in society and the danger of the NCA's vastly more rigid approach than they should have, because now they get to watch as the very things that they were afraid of come to fruition, and they don't get a chance to help sort of cut that in any way, shape, or form. And the irony of the Supreme Court thing was the, the rigid stance, which I guess is a really nice way of, of, uh, of saying stubborn as heck, was not about pay for play. It was about giving laptops to to athletes and allowing them to make some money off of internships. <laughs> this is like something everybody agrees is a good thing. And that's what they, that's the hill they died on. And the fascinating part to me, uh, you say you love politics. I can't stand it. It, 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 it disgusts me. But, <laughs> but as a sort of neutral observer in the whole thing and somebody who doesn't really pay a great deal of attention, the fascinating thing to me about that whole thing um, was that the two justices, you know, who came out most strongly, uh, I guess, uh, savagely uh, uh, toward the NCAA were the very people um, who I'm guessing that the NCAA and a number of, of administrators at universities thought might see their side of it, the more traditionalist, antiquated side of it, um, politically conservative judges, you know, appointed by a Republican president. And I'm going to, uh, I want to quote Andy Staples here because he had one of the, one of the best passages I, I've seen uh, in, in analyzing this whole thing. He said, but this is where the schools and the NCAA aired most egregiously through all of this. They assumed conservatism's presumed affinity for the status quo would supersede conservatism's demonstrated affinity for free markets. That That is... I love that because nobody, nobody's really talking about the free market part. I mean, that's a huge part of, that's a fundamental part of conservatism traditionally, right? So anyway, back to Staples. In the process, the schools and the NCAA placed themselves in the middle of a pincer movement between those who historically champion open markets, quote, uh, parentheses, the right, and those who historically champion workers' rights, the left. So perhaps we should step back and marvel at this group's ability during one of the most politically divided times in our nation's history to turn itself into a common enemy of everyone on either side of the aisle. That is quite a trick indeed. That's, that's the, the fascinating part of this to me, at least. Uh, no, I 100% agree, and I'm totally on Staples' page here. And if we're being honest, I, I figured there'd be at least one or two dissenters. I mean, I, you know, I, I figured they would lose because of the free market point that you made, but somebody would be up there wanting to, you know, just say, let's not upset the apple cart. Let's keep the status quo. Uh, the Supreme court tends to be very status quo oriented as it is. Um, but man, the way the NCAA was soundly beaten, there were a lot of folks that said that amateurism is dead. I, I don't think so. I think the NCAA's version of amateurism is dead. But as I said before, I think now we're going to recraft amateurism. Because you know what's going to happen? Athletes are still going to have to be eligible. It's not going to be professionalized. 
They're not going to get paid for their performance, uh, except for, you know, if it's by a third party that likes, you know, how many sacks Xavier Thomas gets this year, for instance, and wants to, you know, sometime in October, November, be like, hey, you want to run a couple spots or whatever. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I think, uh, that I think people generally are okay with. I, what people are not okay with is, you know, uh, universities footing the bill. Now, I also thought it was interesting in that Supreme Court decision, they did not put a cap on educational benefits. So I think one of the great things about the Supreme Court, everybody's talking about the death of amateurism. One of the great things is now, as a recruiting pitch, as a, a new form of competition, it seems like schools can now use educational opportunities and educational investment to actually compete on the recruiting trail. Instead of every school being like, well, we give you X, but we can't give you Y because the NCAA says we can't. Now it actually creates a competitive marketplace that you can use as a further recruiting tool if you're willing and able to invest those resources. And I think that's a good thing for student athletes as well. So you don't think, in, in light of two factors, uh, what the Supreme Court said, basically uh, causing antitrust plaintiff lawyers to, to, to start their engines all over, all over the country – Combined with the uh, advent of a a twelve team playoff that will bring in four times as much, I think, as it as it already does, and it already brings in what like four hundred seventy seven million um, a year. You don't think that those forces are? You don't think those forces make pay for play an, an inevitability uh, in the in the distant future? Uh, I don't think it has to be. Now, that's a little bit of my, I have a, I have a real naive streak. My dad is a little more cynical and my mom is more naive. And unfortunately I got that part of my mom. So I tend to have some fairly Pollyanna, you know, the, the world is roses and Candyland takes. And that's weird coming from someone who follows politics because that'll make you cynical in a heartbeat. But the reality is I, I don't think in and of itself, I should have said in and of itself, I don't think the Supreme Court decision uh, kills amateurism outright. I do agree with you. They creates avenues by which amateurism could die if smart people don't get in a room and say, okay, how can we do some of these things while not doing all of these things and that, you know, that, that some of these uh, pay-for-play advocates want and still preserve some sort of an educational hierarchy, some sort of an educational system that is different from the professional ranks, is different from... The, the team ignite in the G League, uh, for example, that's taking high school players and coaching them up, or you know some sort of a, a feeder system in another country. Uh, we had a caller this week make a really smart point on our show, which uh, he said, you know, pretty much everywhere in the world, no one has a like. There is not a system like this anywhere. We can't look to another country. That's why international students who don't want to necessarily go pro, who want an education but want to play their sport, that's why they come to America. Because we have this system. I think that was really eye-opening for me because I never thought about that. Because of the opportunities it provides people, because of the very unique global opportunities, not just opportunities for Americans, but opportunities for everybody around the globe to sort of uh, juggle two balls in the air at once with an education and pursuing a, a profession in sports, I think we almost have to do our very best to try to, uh, to keep this system intact to some degree while, as Kelly said, we sort of prune the branches, so to speak. We, we cut off the dead parts, but we keep what's alive and we keep what's still fruitful and we keep what's still you know, able to be used for the good. 
And um, so I think, I, I hope that smart people will get together on this. The NCAA will not be in a group of smart people. The conferences may. Uh, and I think that's been an interesting thing to watch over the last few weeks and months is how the conferences have really distanced themselves in, you know, kind of small ways from the NCAA, where now I think you could totally see a spot where the NCAA is, you know, boxed out these conversations, but the conferences are not. I think that's maybe a best case scenario here moving forward. So I, I won't dismiss what you're saying outright, but I do have sort of blind faith that there are smart people that will help to preserve the parts of the system that are worth preserving in that way. On the topic of, as you said, you know, the university footing the bill, universities footing the bill for, for, for paying these athletes. I know, you know, it's a common, uh, it's a common position like, Hey, these, these athletic departments actually aren't, aren't, you know, it's really totally, you know, it's not like they're rolling in money. They're spending the money, I guess is what I'm saying that they're, that they're making. And so, um, I guess the point would the the counter to that would be well yeah there <laughs> the 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 lack of a paid labor force is is then leading directly to competition in other realms such as facilities uh, these lavish football facilities which of course Clemson has one um, and then the coaches are being paid you know eight seven eight ten million dollars a year so. Do you agree or, or see the argument of, okay, instead of, you know, spending all this money on, on, on these other things, then they would be able to afford it because then they would just turn around and actually pay the labor force that money? Yes, 100%. Now, I don't, I don't know if you could artificially tamp down the market for coaches' salaries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be something that you'd have to do over time. For example you maybe could do it in a higher and then never get back to your heights. Like, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would imagine a place like Auburn is not paying Brian Harson what it paid Dustin Malzahn. I may be wrong about that, but uh, in particular, if you're firing an established head coach, like let's say uh, Brett Bielema at Arkansas and you hire Chad Morris, you're probably, you know, you're probably not paying him what you were paying Bielema. Again, I don't know those numbers, but maybe that's a way uh, to do it from a coaching standpoint. I don't see, you know, existing coaches or current head coaches, one place you're jumping to another, you know, kind of see those salaries tamped down. I do think you would see it from the standpoint of facilities. I think that's the easiest transition of that money is to go from building lavish facilities, again, to provide some value. But now it goes toward the educational expenses that also provides value through that avenue uh, that also you could, you know, you could help uh, – uh, you know, uh, what is it? The cost of attendance stipend. You could help sort of supplement that a little bit. I think this is more, and look, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have sort of doom and gloom thoughts running through my head. Well, if this is over, they're, they're going to cut sports. Nobody's going to be able to do this. But in reality, it, it is a nonprofit. They do have to spend the money every year. And I'm hopeful, again, this is me, the Pollyanna Quark talking here. I, I'm hoping that instead of cutting and slicing and, and gutting, that we'll do more redirecting and managing and funneling in a way that takes from extravagance and moves it to these needs that the Supreme Court has pointed out. Essentially, schools have to meet or schools are being encouraged to meet. Um, I think just the, I don't know how long that'll take, but a rethinking of, of the college athletics world, particularly at the D1 Power 5 level, 
that may take some years. It may take a generation for that thought process to filter out. But again, I think smart people understand this system is necessary, not just for the education of student athletes, although that's that's great, and not just for the universities in and of themselves, but for these entire communities. I mean, you and I live in Clemson. We understand the value of the institution in all the ways to the surrounding area and the economic impacts. So essentially, I, I'm a believer that if if it has to be done, it will be done. That people are not just going to throw their hands up and go, well, uh, let's just steer the Titanic right into the iceberg and just enjoy the time we have left. I think they're going to try to to save it, and I think they're going to try to do what's necessary. And to me, again, I'm not a you know I'm not a a, a grand nep, I'm not a budget person uh, at a major university, but I would think it would be or like Davis Babb running it say or something like that. But I would think it would be fairly simple, relatively speaking, to go from a facilities oriented model to maybe funneling some of that money into various other things to be able to enhance the student athlete experience. I don't know if you read uh, Dan Wetzel, uh, his column, Yahoo Sports. Uh, he had a column about the Supreme Court uh, t- uh, topic, and um, I thought it was really good because he he had a really nuanced sort of conclusion. Obviously, the fact that the NCAA brought this on a, on itself was a major part of his of his piece, but he also said, you know, a lot of the people cheering this uh, as as a uh, precursor to to player to athletes finally getting paid. In the end, those people are going to be uh, li- highly likely be sorry because, um, as he said, you know, yes, college athletics, namely college football, brings in billions in revenue, but that is still a finite number. The biggest athletic departments use the money from one sport or maybe two to fund up to 36 different teams, some of those programs could get cut. A lot of them probably, as he said. Once this becomes just business, don't be surprised if the parts of the business that are almost complete revenue drains get trimmed. That that won't be good. I 100% agree with him on that. And I can distinctly remember there was a show we did from home last year. I remember I was at home and Kelly was uh, in the studio during quarantine and it was right around the time that the Pac-12 Alliance or whatever those uh, the, the players out in the Pac-12 released their manifesto of things that they wanted. And one of them was the 50%. They wanted a 50% cut of all revenue. Yeah. And Kelly basically for like two hours just laughed at that and got increasingly angry because she basically said, is there a single woman on this panel? Because if there were any women, if there were any girls, uh, you know, if, if there was any female representation on this panel whatsoever, that they would know that this is a laughably stupid idea. There's no way in the world that you would do that without absolutely gutting your, um, without absolutely gutting the athletic department. And, you know, going back to the original point, if the athletic department gets gutted, if the value of the educational experience, if the value of collegiate athletic goes down, guess who makes money on name, image, likeness? Nobody. So to that point, to, to Wetzel's point, people do need to be careful what they wish for, because if you push too hard on this, as with anything else in our society, if you push too hard, the dam will break. There is a way to push on the dam that fixes the cracks. I don't. This is a terrible example, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, there's a way to push on the dam that fixes the cracks, and there's a way to push on the dam that caves it in on the other side. And, and I think that, as, as Wetzel said, and I think you pointed it out, that this is a very real danger of overreach in this instance and a lack of understanding about the entire ecosystem 
of an athletic department. I'm not somebody that believes we should do things because that's the way they've always done and that's the way they've been set up. But in this case, I can't think of a situation where we spend all our money paying football players, let's say, and the entirety of women's athletics gets cut or that a bunch of people get fired and a bunch of, you know, across campus cuts have to be made so that we can subsidize women's sports in other avenues. I just don't think that's what people generally want. I don't think that's what anybody really wants in our society, in this community, on, on campus or anything else. And uh, I do think it is a danger, but I do think there's enough of a moderating influence. There's enough moderating voices in the room that we won't necessarily get to that point because I think people in charge understand this. And if there's one thing that we know in culture right now, it's that when the powerful people in charge get an idea, it's hard to disabuse them of that idea without other powerful people. And right now the powerful people understand that we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater on this. Yeah. I, I know or we know Dabo Sweeney, you know, loves minor sports at Clemson. His, his ties with the softball program are well documented. You know, there are plenty of other head coaches, high profile head coaches out there who take an interest in the minor sports, but I'm guessing <laughs> if somebody told them in this world of pay for play, hey uh, Dabo, instead of making ten million a year, we're gonna we're gonna pay you two million so we can keep these minor sports programs. I'm guessing that won't go over too well. I would think not, uh, and it, it shouldn't. I mean, it, it wouldn't go over well if somebody told you or me that either. So um, it, I think it's easy to think of these coaches as as you know millionaires, and they're a little bit out of touch with society. And to an extent, that's true, but. Ultimately, you do have to think, if, like to use your example, if if you're losing 80% of your value to fund things that were previously funded and now they can't be, you don't have to just sit there and be okay with that. You can you can go fight for yourself. So, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of an extreme example, but I'm with you. I mean, I, I think that point is totally valid in that there is a way to fund these programs. We're doing it now. Uh, unless somebody comes up with a better way, a more nuanced way to do that, then we have to try to keep the system going. And look, as somebody who spends a lot of time in the winter calling women's basketball games, uh, as somebody who traveled to Tuscaloosa calling uh, the softball regional, I want these non-revenue sports. Somebody spends a lot of time with baseball, which is a, a revenue sport in some places. You know, I, I spend a lot of time on ACC Network Extra calling men's and women's soccer and and volleyball and baseball and softball there too. These are, these are sports that I like, that I enjoy, that fans like and enjoy, uh, that, that do bring opportunities for young people to find themselves and to get opportunities in the business world and, and creates camaraderie in the community. Um, so I, I, I do think there's inherent value and I think it's a, it's a good thing for Clemson that Davos winning in particular, but I think a lot of coaches on campus understand the, 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 and I'm going to use the word ecosystem again, but the ecosystem of the university and the ecosystem of college athletics that everybody sort of dependent on everybody else. We mentioned Todd Gurley. Um, uh, you're being sort of penalized for making a few grand. I guess AJ Green was another one back in the day, a decade ago. Those guys, though, went to the NFL and have made lots and lots of money. Trevor Lawrence, Sammy Watkins, those types of of talents I don't really think about much when it comes to okay these players need more um because the elite guys are are headed to to much more um in in the professional ranks the guys and I'm sure I've said this about 30 times on this podcast over the last two years so I'm I'm sure people are getting tired of it but the 
the the choice the people that I think about most when it comes to what could how they could have benefited uh, from making a little coin off their off their names and images and likenesses during college are the people who weren't cut out for the NFL but who still were superstars at the college level. Taj Boyd, Ben Boulware, both just major stars uh, who 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 could have made quite a bit of money. You know that could have for Taj Boyd, um, if he had, uh, you know, if he had three hundred thousand dollars in the bank when he got cut by the Jets, maybe that episode wasn't wouldn't have been as traumatic of an event. You know, as he's trying to figure out what to do next. Ben Boulware, I guess he started his uh, fitness facility in Anderson a couple of years ago. You know, he's got a little ne- a, a much bigger nest egg to start that on his own. Maybe he doesn't have to solicit investors and such. Do you agree with that? That those sort of the, I don't know, elephant in the room is probably not the right way to put it, but the, the undeniable, um, element of this that, 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 that you, you just can't look past is, is the, is the college superstar who for whatever reason is not cut out for the NFL and who basically, I don't want to say leaves only, with a with a with a degree, but you know, several hundred thousand dollars is a lot of freaking money. Oh, no question. I'm I'm 100 on board with this. Look, I I think you can look at I think across sports, you can look at you know great personalities or you know sort of quirky characters in, in a lot of different ways in a lot of different sports. The two examples that you used are guys that really I would say I, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I would say it now their value is uniquely tied to Clemson. And I don't think we see that when they're playing because we think about great players in college moving on to the next level. And certainly there are examples in every, I think particularly in college towns, like it might be harder, you know, for somebody from, let's say, you know, Georgia tech to stand out in the Atlanta market. Although there certainly will be some avenues, but I think, you know, the point you make it, 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 it addresses a misnomer. Uh, I guess is the best way to say it, that you're going to start getting endorsements from Coke or Allstate or, you know, big companies you see on TV, when in reality, it's probably going to be local vendors who are doing this. Uh, it's probably going to be local businesses, you know, local car dealers, local banks, local this or that, that are hitching their wagons for normally probably pretty small fees, uh, quite honestly, smaller than maybe $100,000 for a lot of people. Now, for a bull wearer, Taj Boyd, um, you know, that market might be significantly larger because they are sort of photogenic or videogenic or whatever you say. They look nice on screen. And they're players that, you know, have engendered a lot of emotional attachment over the years. Sometimes we don't know the value of that until they try to go to the league or until they're gone. Um, you know, what if, and this is a horrible thing to say, but, you know, what if Sammy Watkins had blown his knee out his junior year and was never the same. I think for the first two years he was here, we might have sort of sloughed off name image likeness thinking, well, he's going to make millions, but none of that is guaranteed. Yeah. I think an example of like Jalen Smith from Notre Dame. To me, that's the biggest example of this, where he gets hurt in his final game in a bowl game in a way that, you know, significantly tanks his draft value. And, uh, you know, thank the good Lord that he's able to recover and now make a living playing football. But imagine he wasn't. I think he's fine with his college experience, but I think we all sort of wish that he could have capitalized while he was at Notre Dame to give himself a bit of a buffer because particularly football is a very dangerous game. 
And as I said before, a lot of the value of these players comes in the communities that you're in. That's why Taj Boyd is back here. That's why Ben Bowler came back here. The family ties back here as well. But it's the community of people that love, care, you know, emotionally connect, support them. They knew they would have opportunities here. And so with that knowledge in mind, you know, why would we not give somebody the opportunity to start that process when they're 18 instead of having to wait, as you said, for life to hit you square in the face at 22, 23, and then having to sort of work backwards to try to get to that point. Yeah, I think Taj Boyd, I mean, in his post-college life in recent years, he's been a kind of a spokesman for uh, uh, for Lakeside Lodge. I mean, you hear him on your on your station. And so, yes. I mean, he could have... He could have done that as a college player. Like that, that, I think that's what we're talking about when you say it's more the local businesses that, that have that, uh, you know, that want that 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 name recognition with 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 the you know people in the community. I mean, he could have. I have no idea how much he makes now from Lakeside Lodge. It's none of my business. But he, his last two years of school, he he could go in over the summer, you know, and cut. I don't know twenty different spots. You know, he could spend an hour hour and a half cutting like 20 different spots and make, you know, make some good money off of it. You know, I don't, I don't see the problem with that, honestly. Oh, I agree with you. And like, you know, thinking about some of the minor sports, I mean, think about how much money Seth Beer would have made. Now, to be honest, (laughs) Seth Beer, uh, there's, there's something sketchy about having a last name Beer and then trying to figure (laughs) out who would endorse this guy 18 years old. Let's see. So so maybe that would be limited a little bit. Maybe those would be like, Hey, when you're 21, you can, uh, you can partake in some of these things. But I think of somebody like Daniel Edwards from women's basketball, who was a terrific person, destiny Thomas, another one, terrific person, engaging personality. You know, they wouldn't have made that type of money. And either one of them went on to play professional basketball, but that's somebody that I'm thinking, okay, if more people got to see them, if the right brand got a hold of them, if they were able to showcase their value, if they were able to get out more, then they could have made a little bit. I, you can look at, you know, Valerie Cagle's a little bit shy, but there are characters on this Clemson softball team that absolutely could be, you know, brand ambassadors for a local business or something like that, uh, you know, from this year and capitalizing on the success that they have. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think those opportunities are plentiful, even trickling down. And then, you know what? YouTube channels, TikTok, uh, TikTok accounts. These are things that people do every day without thinking, and they get you know thousands of likes to, in, in some cases. Why not allow them to monetize these things? Why not allow them to set up, maybe an influencer career after they get done? And these are just, uh, if, if college is about education, then we should be educating people on how to do this rather than letting them, uh, letting them fend for themselves. And as you said... Yeah, we don't know how much these people are making now, but it's clear that there's some value intrinsically tied to the community that they've been able to capitalize on after they've uh, after they've left college. Uh, yeah, Budweiser, uh, uh, you know, Rodney Williams and his and his father Gene, massive Clemson supporters yes. and donors. You can, for Seth for Seth Beer, <laughs> I, I don't know what Budweiser's non-alcoholic offering is, but from from <laughs> before he turned 21, he could have, he could have been sponsored by their non-alcoholic beer, and then once he turns 21, you shift to the real thing. So yeah, could could have you know one other unintended consequence maybe of this. You mentioned Darian Rancher. I want to say this is back before spring practice maybe yeah it was this was back in february i think i guess he had he and his girlfriend have a youtube feed or something i, I am way uh ignorant of a lot of this stuff because i don't follow it i've heard that Braden galloway and his girlfriend are, are immensely popular 
in the social media realm, but I have, have yet to see any of it. But Rencher, at one point, he and uh, they were going to, I guess it was the awards banquet, uh, the football, the postseason awards banquet, and Darian mentioned, yeah, uh, Dabo's got COVID, and like that that's kind of news <laughs> um and probably news that Dabo probably you know didn't want out there and so that is kind of you know again nothing that means we you know is is going to destroy the system it's just a yet another thing that i think football programs are going to have to manage uh because in the past or to date it's been um okay we got to keep everything in house, you know, don't tell the media this, don't tell the media that, keep everything generic. Well, now when there's actual money on the line in terms of, ooh, if I mention this news nugget <laughs> from from behind the curtain that I could make an extra $500. So, that's interesting. It's going to be a interesting interesting thing for them to you know, another layer of this that they have to 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 to, to deal with uh, internally, right? Uh, yes. Totally. And there are two ways to go about it. One is to basically act like it doesn't exist, which I think is kind of the posture right now. And I think in some ways it has to be the posture right now. Uh, The second way is to educate people fully on what these new avenues of expression, sort of the pros and cons of it. And you're right. I mean, Braden and his girlfriend get a ton of clicks. Like, I, you know, quite honestly, I'm a little jealous. Like, I wish I wish that many people would listen to our shows every day. But they get a ton of clicks on the stuff that they put out there on TikTok and YouTube and everything else. And, and uh, you know, Darian and his girlfriend are in there, too. I think there's some others in there with them, and they have a channel. I don't really know. I'm, I'm with you. I'm more of an old soul in this thing. Like, I watch YouTube videos, but I don't, like, I have a YouTube channel because I had to have one in college. But I don't know really how they work. I, you know, video editing is not my strength. And so uh, I just appreciate what people are able to do. But educating, okay, here are things you can put out there. Here are things you can't put out there. Making sure that, you know, rather than being absent and letting people stumble through, giving clear direction on this is what we want you to say. This is what we'd rather you not say. You know, within these bounds, you can be expressive. But let's try to keep, you know, what's in the locker room in the locker room. I mean, I think that that was an honest mistake. It was an honest slip up. But it was, I think, educational that, you know, you can't just say whatever you want. Like, you, there, there, are, um, yeah, there are limitations on what you can express in these platforms. And a lot of times if you're not, if you're just letting people be people, those things are not addressed. And people don't think about those things. So I think one thing that the NIL hopefully will do is, is to create avenues where, you know, further education is given, further understanding uh, is accomplished, uh, both on the administrative side of this, so that there is a, a better way to tell people what they can and can't do. And then uh, on the student-athlete side as well, where we start educating people about social media in the same way. And I think it's close right now, but in the same way that we do about, you know, NCAA rules violations and what you can and can't, you know, what people can't pay for when, when you go out to lunch and stuff like that. Uh, hopefully we get to that point. 
want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union. If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. All right, so you're, we're, we're talking here for close to an hour. You're you're working today, right? You have a show. You're doing your show. <laughs> yes, uh, this is very helpful. How do you? Okay, so uh, I'm, I, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say this. I told you the podcast is show prep, <laughs> and uh, I'm t- I'm taking some notes already. <laughs> do you ever get tired? I, I know with, with me. I mean, my job is writing. That's like that's what I'm what I'm good at. I know that after I spend an hour on a podcast, I'm kind of intellectually tired. And I know that when I do like a guest spot, you know, on, on your show or Plyler's show for 20 minutes, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm done talking. Um, do you ever get tired of talking? Like, I mean, you're, you're talking 15 hours a week and then here an hour. I mean, does it ever like, oh my gosh, I need a break. And then, and not even to mention your, all the, all the, all the play by play stuff that you do. The short answer is yes. Um, yes, to there are days, do you get tired of it? <laughs> yes, I do get tired of it. Um, and I, there, you know, there are, there are a lot of days where I come home after the show and I just like I play video games for an hour, mm-hmm. or I go, you know, spray weeds in the yard, or I do something that, and I listen to a podcast. I try to educate myself on something. You know, I I, I want to. I I'm a big like believer in in using the day to to learn and to grow. And if I'm not using that time productively while resting, I feel like I'm wasting it. So that's probably a terrible perspective. I would not tell that to a group of kids, but that's sort of the way that my brain is wired. Like, okay, you need to rest, but you also need to know what's going on in the world. So throw on a news podcast for half an hour or, Hey, this, uh, I'm, I don't, I don't know where this comes from, but I love the mob. So like, Hey, uh, this podcast on the mob came out. You just listen to that for like 30 minutes while you check your fancy baseball roster or whatever. Like just something where somebody's talking to me um, and I don't feel the pressure to talk back. I, I do get there um, a lot of days. And there's some days where I can keep going where Kelly and I will do a great show and we'll keep doing the show during breaks and after the show. And it's just a great engaging conversation. Um there, in particular, when I'm calling games, like if I've got a women's basketball game at seven, I do try to spend a little bit of time just sort of relaxing in between because ultimately there are two reasons. Uh, one is I don't want to get tired at the end of that game. 
because I've been talking forever and my brain's been engaged forever. So I do have to make myself relax. And two, because the voice gets tired. Yeah. I mean, I get, you know, anytime you get the sniffles, your voice goes. And that is like Roy Philpott beat this into my head. Like you can't, like you have to take care of your voice. However you have to do it. You have to take care of your voice. You cannot lose your voice. I had lost my voice on broadcast before. I remember one time I was calling a series, a uh, baseball series at Georgia Southern. It was a weekend. And I started feeling bad like on Thursday, but I, I drove down anyway. There was a, I don't think we played on Friday. I think that's right. Or maybe we played Friday and played two on Saturday. Anyway, there was a doubleheader on Saturday. And I remember um, the dugout, they had like jugs of sweet tea. And I had Robitussin. I had cough drops, I had emergency, and I had that jug of sweet tea. And I pounded like 90-degree sweet tea along with all those medications just to stay afloat. Just because I had to do 18 innings of baseball by myself, and I just had to to make my voice work. So this is a terrible remedy. And again, I would not tell this to a group of kids, but it it is the most important thing. And so I've learned, you know, I haven't, I don't want to sound like somebody who's been doing this for five decades or whatever, but I have learned that you can't take your voice for granted because once it goes, you don't really have, you can't do your job. You can't work. It's annoying. Um, and you know, we did a baseball series this year where I don't, we don't really know why, but about the second inning of a double header, Bob Mahoney lost his voice. So I had 16 innings by myself at Boston college where I was, you know, I was kind of planning on Bob being there. Bob just kind of sat there. He couldn't say anything and it was horrible for him. And it was, you know, I, I think I, we got so many text messages like, is Bob's mic off? Like, what's the deal there? <laughs> and so so you see that um, you see that play out all the time where, you know, the worst thing that you can possibly have is your, for your voice to be gone. So, I, you know, that's a long way to answer. Yes, I do have to rest my voice and I do get tired of talking sometimes. Do you do all this extra stuff, meaning beyond your three hours a day on WCCP? with like a goal in mind, like this is why I'm doing it because I want to be at this point one day, uh, or do you do it just because you love doing it? You love doing it particularly for your alma mater, or is it maybe a mix of, of, of the two? I think it's all those things. I mean, ultimately, um, I, I hope this is my goal more days than not is that I do it because this is what I'm supposed to do. And that's a, that's a weird answer, but I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very spiritual person. My dad's a pastor. My mom's a, a teacher, not just on the weekdays, uh, teaching high school with Daniel, but she, I mean, she's a Sunday school teacher. I mean, I was brought up to, to believe in God and I have a, a great faith. And, and as a part of that faith, I believe that I was, I was put here to do certain things. And if I'm not doing this for the glory of God, then there's no reason for it, in my opinion. Um, you know, I I remember in middle school, I filled out a questionnaire that said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And in sixth grade, I said, I want to play in the NBA. Uh, <laughs> by, by seventh grade, it was abundantly clear to me that I was not going to the NBA. And so when I was 12, in the seventh grade, I wrote down, I want to be a broadcaster. Mm. Um, I remember I've told this story before, but when I was growing up, I would mute my video games, the sports video games and do my own announcing, which is easier to do when you know what you're about to do. You can anticipate what to say. Um, but I like, I grew up not knowing, and and I would say not knowing, but I was more familiar with the Keith Jackson on NCAA game breaker 99 than I was Keith Jackson doing the Rose bowl, the granddaddy of them all. Like 
uh, Al Michaels and Bob Costas and the, you know, uh, lately like Marty Brenneman from the Reds and these, these people who, you know, I, I would listen to and I would try to emulate and try to just take notes of, wow, that's, that's really cool how they did that. Or man, it'd be really cool to call this game or, you know, listening to Jim Phillips, my whole childhood call games, um, football and, and basketball games in the car. And, you know, Don Munson, I remember Don Munson from when I was a kid and, um, you know, P. Yannity and, and Don again is the voice of Clemson. I mean, just listening to these people and, and knowing like that's something that, that would be interesting. And then to get an opportunity to do it at a, at a very young age. Um, I did some wood bat summer league baseball for two or three years before I ever got an opportunity at Clemson where it was online. You had, as I'd like to say, you had tens of listeners tuning in and you could kind of just figure out what you like. And, um, and that's just fun. It's fun for me to be able to tell the story of a game. So, um, I, I do it first and foremost, because I believe that God has put things in my heart that if I'm not calling games, unless he changes that, that I'm not fulfilling that. And if I'm not bringing glory to him, then there's no point. The second thing is that another thing that, um, that God has put in my heart is a love of Clemson. And sometimes I'm going to try not to get emotional here, but, um, sometimes I get emotional when I'm speaking to groups because, um, when I was three months old, my mom, who's an 85 grad of Clemson in 1989, took me to a football game. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't miss a game until I was 11. Now that's not me getting up and going. That's my parents dragging me. And that's me going. You like when, when it was fun to slide down the side hill in the West end zone. And when you could actually play football in the grass, that there weren't cars in every inch of grass in, in Clemson and, and knowing that, you know, it's okay if we lose, cause we're going to lose five times. It's fine. Just go to, just go to a bowl game. Um, that that's what I grew up with. And when I was deciding where to go for college, I was, I didn't think I was coming to Clemson and Eddie Smith, one of the communications professors convinced me that everything I wanted to do, I could do at Clemson. And so, you know, at one point I wanted to, to host sports center, like Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen were the pinnacle. Um, I realize now that Bristol Connecticut is very cold and I'm not sure I'd want to live in a very, in a very cold place. Um, and you know, quite honestly, the more that I've gotten involved with Clemson, uh, the more I realize that, that Clemson in this community is in my heart and I want to serve this community the best way that I can. Um, and I think, you know, the, the coaches that I interact with and the, the student athletes I interact with, I feel that it's honoring to them. If somebody that cares about their games, somebody that cares about the performance can communicate to the fans that we all care about what's going on here. And you should care too. Um, you know, that goes for a women's basketball game when they're down by 30. If, if you can't tell that we're down 30, I feel like I've kind of, you know, I want you to still listen, but I feel like I haven't done my job. I want to communicate that to people that I care about. Um, so I, I think of my life and, and journey a little bit like, um, in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie uh, with, with Johnny Depp, Jack Sparrow, he has a compass that tells you where you want to go in the whole movie. You know, he, he wants to go find the Black Pearl, and then ultimately it changes to something much more wholesome. No, I know it's been out for like 20 years, but no spoilers, I won't spoil it. But it, it, changes to something, it changes to something more wholesome. And I kind of see that in my life where the professional pursuit says, I want to go work at ESPN, and, you know, if that'd be great one day, I would say now, if somebody asked me that, and you are asking me right now, I would say I want to love and serve Clemson 
and this community the best way that I can in as many ways as I can to try to get people excited about the things that get me fired up because that's what's in my heart. And I feel that God put that there and that uh, hopefully on a day-to-day basis, I'm being faithful to that. And also with the way the industry has changed, uh, you could argue you, you have a, a better job security where you are right now than you would at ESPN with the way things are Oh, going. no question. There is no question about that. And I'll say, like, there's been a lot about the demise of sports radio. And, I, like, what I see every day from, and I won't speak for all, like, college towns or small markets or things like that, but, boy, in Clemson, there is a passion for radio. There is a passion for the Tigers. I don't see that waning. Um, I think there will always be a market to some degree for a local voice for, you know, important things. And um, that if there's one thing I learned during the pandemic, it is exactly what you said. It's that many times the greener grass gets brown really fast on the other side of the fence. And, you know, thankfully, like Kelly didn't lose her job. Roy Philpott, a very good friend of mine, didn't lose his job. But a lot of people did. And a lot of people were stuck. They thought they had reached the pinnacle of their careers, and then it went away in an instant. And I got to tell you, I, I have a great job, and I love my bosses. I love who I work with every day. I love getting to serve uh, Clemson and getting to be involved in the community and getting to be involved on campus with students and student-athletes. Those are just things I'm very passionate about. And um, the fact that I have job security is a nice bonus to that. For your show, um, they're probably – come times when you have to tell like it is about whatever team is struggling uh, at Clemson is it given your your deep emotional uh, love for Clemson and all the relationships you've built and all the stuff you discussed a minute ago is it hard for you to sort of distance yourself when you feel like the time comes to not call somebody out but to just call something for what it is Yes, I do think so. Um, it does get difficult, especially when, you know, for instance, in, in what happened with baseball this year, you know, I, I see baseball a little bit differently from people. And some of that is because of the access and some of it is because of research I've done myself. Um, that can be difficult because on the one hand, you do want to protect those relationships, especially if you're going to be calling games uh, for people who can very easily say, we don't want you calling games. And I mean, we'd be crazy to think that's not a concern. Uh, on the other hand, I, as I said, Clemson's in my heart. Clemson fan is what I was first before I was a Clemson student or alum or radio host or broadcaster. So I, I do have that in me, that fan side. Now it just is, I would say, educated differently with conversations, coaches, players, administrators, etc. And you know this too, that, you know, sometimes there's this, there's this, first of all, I have great respect for what you do and for what true journalists do, because I, I just have a hard, I have a hard time with that. I, I want to take people at their word. I'm not outwardly skeptical. I just don't have that sort of whatever it is, that, that journalism in your bones that wants to dig down. Like I want to understand things, but I'm, I'm just not a, I'm more apt to take some of these words for it than to question everything that they just told me. And so I do have a great respect for the work that you do and the work that so many great people who, who cover Clemson's beat and who cover beats all over the country do in that way. But you know, too, that there, there is a way of holding people accountable 
that if there is negative sentiment toward a coaching staff or a team or players or athletic department or whatever, and you sort of say, whoa, 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 objectively, many of these things are not true. Objectively, here's what the thing is. Then you get called a hack. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know because I know you that you are far from a hack, that you are about holding people accountable. But sometimes people think holding people accountable means everything that the athletic department does that I think is wrong is wrong. And everybody ought to just be asking questions and anybody who doesn't is a shill. And so that is a very delicate balance. I try to be, I've said my radio mission statement is I want to be a logical thinker guided by emotion. And I want to follow the data. And if I'm going to be critical of somebody, generally speaking, I'm going to have like well thought out reasons for it. I'm not going to do it haphazardly because I, I understand that. Like, for instance, I think I've been more harsh than a lot of people on Brent Venables, who I saw at Publix the other day. We have a great relationship. <laughs> I, I've, been, uh, I've been more harsh on Brent Venables for the lack of adjustment to Ryan Day and the, the tempo, uh, the issues that they caused with their different tempos and the way they manipulated tempo in the game, which I thought was one of the most brilliant bits of coaching that I've ever yep. seen at any level. Agreed. I've been more critical of him. While there's a lot of talk out of the program going, we got to be more physical. We got to be more physical. We got to be more physical. And I've said that may be true, but that wasn't the issue against Ohio State. The issue was they weren't ready. They were getting off the ball a half a second or a second later. You can't be physical enough if the other team gets a half second or second head start on you. If you're looking at the sideline when the ball snapped, I don't think coming out of 2017 Syracuse, they Clemson need to be more physical. They need to be ready when the ball was snapped. Yeah. And so, like, I think that's an example of where when my eyes see something, when I perceive something, I'm not just going to let what's coming out of the program dictate it, but I am going to give coaches, players, people I interact with that tell me things that maybe explain in a better way or get at least a rationale why they did this. I, I think I do give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe more than some people would like. Okay. So let's say, um, you know, you've been pointed in the last several months in saying, Hey, the real issue here was them not getting set repeatedly and not, uh, not having an answer for Ryan Day's really creative, and novel tactics in, in dialing the tempo up and down and then the shifts and things like that. What if you see Brent Venables at Publix and he's like, hey, man, what the hell? <laughs> I'm never talking to you again. Is your reaction, dang, maybe I was too strong, or is it, no, I'm sticking to my guns here because that's that's my genuine opinion. That's a, that's a good question. That actually, it happened to me one time. And I won't say who it was, but I had a coach come to me one time. I'll never forget it. It was after I'd done a game, and I'd said some things that the coach did not agree with. And ultimately, in that one instance, which is really, it's really the only time that it's happened, in that one instance, I, was, I felt that I was wrong, legitimately. I felt that my opinion was wrong about what happened that I didn't see a thing that I should have seen or maybe didn't understand why something was happening in a way that I should have. And so after I logically went back and, you know, thought about, was I fair? Was this a, a criticism that I came to with all the knowledge that I should have come to with? Would I have come to a different decision? Had I spent a little more time with the coach? Had I, you know, pressed on this issue a little bit more? I ultimately decided, you know what? He's right. So I would say in this instance, yes. Yes, I, I think I think all of us watching the game would agree. Like 
I think Ryan Day outcoached Brent Venables. Now, I think Brent Venables has been outcoached like twice in 10 years. So <laughs> I don't think, you know, I'm not going to say fire the coach or anything like that. But I think it's fair to point that out. That yes, the program needs to be more physical, but you know we probably probably need to see a better plan uh, moving forward for somebody using tempo the way that Ohio State did. In the first instance, I feel like it's only fair for me to hear them out and to not you know you know what I mean like not just stick to my guns because I did come to that opinion. But anytime I get new information, to add that to the collection of information I already had to say okay, with this new information, does this justify me changing my opinion? Or, you know, is this person being, you know, a little too sensitive? And so I think that's an important part of the job where I do want to give coaches the benefit of the doubt. I do want to give players the benefit of the doubt, but I'm not going to give the benefit of the doubt to the exclusion of the evidence that we see. I will add perspective from coaches to the evidence we see and try to draw a better, more informed conclusion. You got a show to get to, so I'm going to, I'm going to have, give you one last question. Uh, the last... 15 months, I guess, have been extraordinarily hard for a lot of uh, people in the in the sports industry. I mean, there was a period of time where you guys didn't have anything to talk about when everything was shut down uh, last spring and summer. How hard has it been? How difficult has it been? Not just that, during that time, filling 15 hours a week, uh, having to come up with stuff. and uh, But on top of, this is such a charged time where people's emotions are high over whatever issue it is, whether it's name image likeness, social justice, this and that, how difficult has it been um, to still sort of have the desired sort of spirit uh, that you want um, as you, as you, and the enthusiasm that you want uh, as you approach your show? Man, that's a good question. Um, it was, it was, it was good. I think in a lot of ways, because it, it kept you on your toes. Um, it allowed us some leeway to do some things. We did a a 30 for Thursday where we looked at, uh, ESPN 30 for 30 and broke it down every week while there weren't sports going on. Um, we did a lot of like trivia and, you know, we, we had great, we had Charlie Wirestone. I'd never interviewed him. That was phenomenal. (laughs) I mean, my gosh, what a great interview. We actually were talking this week. God, we need to get Charlie back. I mean, that was, that was incredible. Um, and we did, you know, we had a unique opportunity to talk to, you know, um, Amari Rogers and Mike Jones and Darian Rencher about the, the social justice march uh, on campus. And so I think some of the opinions that we had were very frustrating for a lot of our listeners. And that that was difficult because in that moment you do have to decide, okay, am I saying this because I, to the previous question, am I saying this because I want to please the right people or do I actually believe that, you know, some of this has a point? Am I talking to the right people about this and getting balanced, you know, reviews of this to try to come to a, an informed conclusion? And then am I willing to take some criticism? Am I willing to be branded a liberal or a fascist or a, conservative or a, you know, a Marxist or whatever the case may be. Um, am, am I willing to go through that to try to have a, a take that I'm comfortable with on, on some of these issues? And we had a, we had a hard time with the, with the social justice shows with the, you know, student athlete empowerment shows. Um, we had a hard time with the allegations of racism that came out about Danny Pierman last year, had a hard time with that because once again, I have a good relationship with Danny. 
And so we try to talk about that in a fair way while still, you know, maybe giving him the more benefit of the doubt than some other people would. Um, I, I just, I felt like that more than anything else, it strengthened the faith. Not that we have a, a show that's like, you know, in your face about Christianity, but Kelly and I are both people of faith and it. Like if you're, if you're not, you know, trying to access God, if you're not in prayer, if you're not really trying to dig deep and try to come to a wholesome conclusion on these things, you can really get twisted and you can really get, um, you can really get, uh, maybe swayed by public opinion or by a fear of man or whatever the case may be. But at, at the end of the day, we were comfortable in saying, you know what, these student athletes deserve a right to speak. And they did, um, you know, with, with COVID, we were encouraging people to get vaccinated and we we're encouraging people to wear masks and things like that. And we had callers saying that we were crazy and texters <laughs> saying all kinds of things. And, and, but we, we felt, we, we felt good about that. We felt good enough about that to take it on air when we did. Sometimes we didn't feel good about where we were to take it on air. And we would wait and wait and wait to address something until we both had a comfort level with it that we could go on air with it. And so we had these very serious moments, like you talked about, these, these very serious shows. And then we had the silliest, nonsense shows. We did uh, what, what we affectionately called trackets. Uh, it was a, a gaffe that Kelly had that it wasn't a, you know, we did a full bracket of the best college football team in the last 20 years, but we also did practice like a fast food bracket and, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, a sitcom bracket, it's sitcom characters. I mean, we, we did these things because people let us, because we all realized, I think during the last 15 months that we needed something. Um, and boy, I, I'll tell you what, I would not have wished the last 15 months on anybody, but getting to be in, you know, partly for half full of for women's basketball is nice going to Tuscaloosa for the, um, for the NCAA softball regional and for the game against Clemson on Saturday, when they were both in the winner's bracket to hear a full stadium cheer, mm -hmm. like I'm. Honestly, I'm getting goosebumps right now. It made me emotional, mm -hmm. Larry, because we missed it for yeah. 15 months. We we were not, you know, like I didn't go to a football game this year. I did everything from studio. Some people got to go cover the game. Some people got to attend. We, I, I had not been legitimately in that type of environment in so long that it was almost, it was food for my soul. It was water for my thirsty soul. That's what it felt like. And it was, it was so great. And the, that moment, those moments, the, the moment that somebody's going to get in Charlotte when Clemson and Georgia play, which by the way, I've never felt more connected to the eighties than I do right now, because now <laughs> like I'm talking about huge Clemson, Georgia games, the national title and the balance that like when I was growing up, people were like, ah, oh, those were great days. Those yeah. were the best days. These days stink. Um, <laughs> somebody is going to get that experience in Charlotte. Somebody is going to get this in a, in a home game this year for football. Somebody's going to get it in Little John. Somebody's going to get it in Doug Kingsmore. Somebody's going to get it in McWhorter Stadium or Historic Riggs Field. Somebody's going to get it. And, you know, being able to broadcast some of those games and some of those moments with full crowds, that is a really special thing for me now because there were, there were two days, I'll tell you, I was, I was very afraid of job security. I was very afraid of athletics at the college level. I was very concerned with, you know, if we don't have a football season, what's going to happen. I was not hearing very encouraging things on that front and I stayed hopeful, but it was just not looking great. And so now when you, when you have to address your life without the things that back to the example of Johnny Depp and the compass, you feel like your compass is pointing you in a direction that seems like it's going away. 
that's a really confusing thing spiritually. And it's a really confusing thing emotionally where now I have a wife where if it was just me, I'd probably figure it out. But now I got to figure out what to do. Like my wife has a stable job, but I don't. So how do I replace that income? How do I replace the, the hole in my heart that comes from not being able to do this anymore? When you have to address those things and you come out and like, I would say God is faithful, but the things happen that you were afraid weren't going to happen anymore then man, that is a, that is an awesome experience. And it, it, um, to borrow from, uh, Amanda Butler, who I have a great respect for and, and that that staff has been awesome to me. I mean, really, they have been tremendous and I love those people on that staff. She talks about having a, having a spirit of gratitude every day when you wake up. And I think I'm better at that now having gone through those 15 months where there was just not a lot that was certain for anybody. I can't tell you how many times in recent months that I've thought, <clears throat> Back, okay, what was I doing on this day a year ago, and what was I thinking? And that's enough to, to make me savor uh, what we have. Not to say that there aren't plenty of issues out there that are worthy of spirited discussion and even debate, but there's just so much of a tendency toward the negative and toward tearing each other apart that that I, we, we, it, it feels like it's overshadowed. Do you realize what kind of a miracle this is right now? That, I mean, this was not predicted that we'd be sort of, you know, back toward full stadiums and all that. And so um, definitely a lot of gratitude uh, to, toward that and toward, toward the normal, uh, the normal routines. Uh, well, you've got to get to a, a show that actually pays you. So <laughs> your, your actual <laughs> job, I hope I didn't cost you any of your, of your voice. Uh, for your show, but um, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a blast up in up in New Jersey for the wedding you're attending. Hey, uh, anytime, Larry. Thanks very much. And uh, as I say, I enjoy the podcast. It's it's humbling. It's a pleasure to be on with you, and uh, keep doing great work, man. You're awesome, man. Thanks for the extremely and excessively kind words from uh, Mr. Qualkenbush. The feelings mutual. Really good talk there. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Appreciate him. Appreciate our sponsors for their very generous and loyal support of the podcast but most of all thanks to all of you for hitting that play button every week everybody have a great rest of the week and weekend and we'll be back next week as usual cheers cheers